And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on. And Max Verstappen won again as Red Bull wrapped up the Constructors' Championship at Suzuka, but McLaren laid down a marker for 2024 by being a clear second best at one of F1's most challenging circuits, with Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri second and third. So just how strong is McLaren, and where did the Ferrari and Mercedes challenges go? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to tell all are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, hello. We'll come to you first, get straight into it, because it would be very, very easy on this podcast to let fall through the cracks the fact that... Red Bull clinched the Constructors' Championship, record six races to spare. Obviously, it's been a foregone conclusion for months, but it's worth talking about. How big an achievement is that? It's massive, and it's one of the most dominant Constructors' Championship wins in the, the sport's history. And it was sealed in um, you know, you know, the manner in which it's dominated this championship, really. Um, it, it was you know, never really in doubt from the... The first lap that Max Verstappen did on Friday um, when he was <laughs> second and a half clear of the field. And it was easy to assume he was on a mission after, you know, the, the question marks around Singapore's performance. Um, and I think there was some truth in that. Um, but it was also just an expression of the Red Bull's performance around a, a track that really, really rewards the high-speed downforce that that car can generate and which Max is able to exploit to the absolute limit and from a beautifully driven pole position lap. Um, uh, not brilliant start, but one where he was uh, very um, determined to come out of the first turn uh, ahead of the McLaren that was trying to go around his outside. 
and from there it just disappeared. And uh, yeah, it didn't need Sergio Perez to seal that Constructors' Championship, which is just as well, really, uh, in the circumstances, because... Um, Sergio just kept hit, hitting things and uh, it wasn't around at the end. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Max Verstappen scored enough points to be well ahead in the Constructors' Championship on his own, hasn't he? So, yeah, he hasn't needed too much help from Checo this year, certainly. But, Scott, obviously the Constructors' Championship is very easy to overlook it, isn't it? Because the Drivers' Championship is really the one that everyone talks about. The Constructors' Championship is second prize. And normally it's only talked up when a team doesn't win the Drivers, but gets the Constructors as Mercedes did a couple of years ago. But it is a massive achievement and it's a big deal for a team to do this, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's the thing that matters to a lot of other individuals beyond the obvious ones within a racing team because I'm sure that many people within Rebel Racing will be celebrating some uh, hard-earned bonuses from for, for winning the constructors championship it's what um it, it'll be part of what you know the you know the sponsors buy into and commercial partners it'll you know that that right to call yourself world champions goes beyond just just the driver so um, it's a very big deal for for the team. It is probably one that that we undersell. Obviously, um, the position being number one in the constructors' championship also brings you the most prize money in from 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 that side of things. It also means that um, you will inevitably spend a lot more money than any other team on your entry for the following season because you you do pay more per point. Um, and Red Bull has scored a lot of those this year, so it will cost them an arm and a leg to to come back into F1 next season. Well, as proof of ever it was needed that the house always wins as the FI will be taking in that particular cash, but obviously they'll get the same amount regardless of uh, how many points individual teams win. But let's get into it, because Mark, you kind of alluded to it, but it was a very straightforward race for Verstappen, other than those few seconds at the start when... Norris was threatening, and obviously Piastri got a better initial launch as well. But the pole position was key, and there was a lot of talk about the quality of Verstappen's Saturday performance. So how good was his pole lap? Oh, it was, it was fabulous. I mean, it, when you saw the margins that, that he was playing with they were on, on the way he was um, using up all the track on entry and the commitment to the, the, the through the corner of the fast S's and where you've got to be so precise if, you, if you're running near the limit. Otherwise, you just lose, the, the lap time just bleeds away because they're an interconnected series of corners. Um, yeah, to see him through there, watching that lap from on board, just just fabulous. And it, just such a, a delicate touch as well. It was, you know, he wasn't really manhandling it. He was just obviously manipulating it, it with, with, you know, the, the steering throttle and brakes throughout the lap. And in a, in a way, it was just, yeah, it was beautiful to watch. Yeah, it's almost a virtuous circle, isn't it? You have a car that works really well, but you have a driver who understands it and who really understands the way you set your compromises through a section like that. That snake section is arguably the the best trial for a driver anywhere on the calendar in terms of how they put it together. And Verstappen absolutely aced that, passed that test with flying colours. But I guess, Scott, we have to compare it with what Perez did don't we, particularly in qualifying, almost eight tenths off Perez was. He felt that was slightly exaggerated by the fact he only had one set of softs for Q3. But then again, had he done what Verstappen did, I think, in Q2, he'd have had two sets anyway. So it all amounts just to a driver who's not quite as at one. So are we going to be quite negative about Perez being slow or do we just think that Perez's pace relative to Verstappen is just testament to how brilliant Verstappen was? Um, No, the, the gap was bigger than just that this weekend he he was a long way off um he didn't feel comfortable in the car and seemed to suggest that 
they need to really get to the bottom of why that was the case. So it wasn't something where he finished the weekend and thought, oh yeah, if I'd, if I'd done this differently or this had worked, then this would have played out in, in this way and everything would have lo looked a lot better. This was just a very difficult weekend in, in his words. And obviously he um, converted that disappointing qualifying session into a even worse race, which started badly. He felt he was... Um, helpless basically a passenger i think he said he was down into into turn one um forced into hitting lewis hamilton on on his left hand side um he, he felt that there wasn't something quite right with the car after that just indicating that he just didn't have the front end sort of blamed his incident with kevin magnuson on that but the incident with magnuson was was hardly the the only one he he he'd, he'd gone off at He'd had that off, slight off-track moment, hadn't he, at Spoon behind Magnussen a lap before that, and it was just, it was just a clumsy, clumsy race that was just a very negative end to a very difficult weekend. Yeah, a horribly messy race in the end for Perez. Obviously, Mark, that initial incident at the start that was really the consequence of science being quite forceful with where he put his car so I, I don't think we can blame Perez for that by any stretch of the imagination but it's just a bit worrying isn't it it's like sometimes when he's in races when he needs to force the issue things start to unravel because obviously he went into that race thinking yeah I've still got the pace in this car to come through to second that would have been the objective and he just didn't seem to deal with it that well no and I think even though he qualified only fifth I think he knew they had a car uh, with the pace that was uh, better than the, the the cars in between him and Verstappen. And so really it was one of those races where he didn't really need to be that aggressive. If he just kept his nose clean, um, the, 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 the places would have come, I'm sure. They would have come around the pit stops maybe or even on, even on performance. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, it's... It's puzzling that it went so badly wrong. Uh, he got a really bad start, a really slow start, and that was what brought Lewis alongside him on his left. And if it hadn't been for that, um, you know, he, he, he wouldn't have um, made that contact. But, yeah, so maybe his start needs to be um, looked at and analysed. But, yeah, just, just started going wrong within two seconds. And uh, it, it, it just kept getting worse didn't it? it was partly circumstantial but you know sometimes you sort of you run to meet circumstances in, in, in a, a, a way that's not favorable yeah I think that's a good way to put it it was not a good weekend overall for Perez but as we always say he's got pretty much the toughest job in Formula One being up against Max Verstappen who is absolutely on top form and Although the points are not great for Perez, he has made his contribution to this Constructors' Championship and not many drivers do that. I'm not trying to make it too uh, too much of a, uh, a compensation for the weekend. He'll be frustrated by that. But yeah, there's, uh, there's pressure still there on Perez. But let's move on to McLaren now, Scott, because they produced a very strong performance this weekend, converted that second and third on the grid into a double podium. Pretty emphatic second and third, if indeed you can be an emphatic second and third. So... Given Suzuka is such a demanding track aerodynamically, what does that say about McLaren's progress? It shows what we've seen basically since the Austria upgrade, that this car is it's, it's lovely through the high-speed stuff, isn't it? And it's pretty good through the medium speed as, as well. So this was always a track that I thought the McLaren could really shine on. I thought that a big result was possible. Um, second and third is 
including obviously Oscar Piastri's first F1 podium and a ma- and, and a massive gain on Aston Martin in fourth in the championship is a dream weekend for for McLaren. I, I don't think we learned anything particularly new about the car because the big upgrade that came in Singapore was was you know aimed more towards the the slow speed and there's a couple of those at, at this track with the hairpin and the chicane. Andrea Stella said, I think after qualifying, that unfortunately his fears that that would be where they're weak were proven correct. Um, but in the end, it amounted to what a couple of attempts deficit to to two or three attempts deficit to the Red Bull. If if I think if they'd hooked their laps up, absolutely spot on. So there's clearly a lot of pace in this car. I think it's the second fastest car now in Formula One. It's definitely the second fastest car on high speed circuits like this. But I think as we go over the balance of the season, the remaining six races. I think it will be the second fastest car on on balance. The the rate that they've been scoring points at since um, the upgrade in Austria, if they'd done that all season, they'd be second in the Constructors' Championship, which tells you all you need to know. Yeah, absolutely. Early in the season when there were high hopes about how they turn things around, I must admit we were quite sceptical about it because teams don't turn things around like that. But McLaren not only made that change, but also they've continued to build on it. So really, really have been performing in, impressively. Well, this is just, it's, it's borderline absurd, the, the, the way that they've done it. I, I, I don't remember, when was the last time a team turned it around? Was it when McLaren introduced a, a B-spec back in the 2000s? When has there been a transformation in performance like this? Yeah, sort of um, 2004, was it? I, yeah, you're, I, so, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're sort of basically, you're going back to the 20 years, aren't you? Williams had yeah. the old turnaround, you know. Yeah. That, that, well, I guess, very, very I guess even it. 2009, I guess even 2009, but even then, because that car was obviously a lot more difficult at the start of the season and Lewis ended up winning the race that year, mm. didn't he? But that still showed some glimpses. And the main point there is that McLaren had been a title winning team the year, the year before. Yeah. Well, as usual, we've got lots of questions from the Race Members Club. We're going to tackle this set of McLaren ones now rather than in our question section at the end because thematically it makes the most sense. And the first is from Thomas Addison, which I'll aim at you, Mark, who says, with McLaren's recent and continued success in upgrades and both drivers scoring well in the points, could you discuss McLaren's chance of taking fourth place in the Constructors' Championship from Aston Martin? Oh, I think it's pretty good because their upswing in form has coincided with Aston Martin's downswing, plus Aston Martin's only scoring points with one car. You know, the other one's very rarely troubling the points. So, yeah, I, I would say it's more than likely that McLaren um, overtake Aston before the end of the year. Well, looking at the way the points have been, since the upgrade was introduced in Austria, McLaren has scored 155 points to Aston Martin's 67. And you can actually argue that probably Aston Martin was slightly boosted there by uh, Alonso Zanvoort results. So that's, uh, that paints a picture. So yeah, at the closing rate, they will get ahead. Scott, a question from JK who says, will the colossal amount of upgrades McLaren have brought this season jeopardise the development of next year's car or even put them in danger of breaching the cost cap? I don't think it jeopardises next year's car because I think it all feeds into next year's car. When you look at the amount of work that went into changing the the, the concept, the, the underlying design, whatever you want to call it, that is basically what McLaren's been doing this year is a little bit like what Aston Martin did over the course of the second half of 2022 and then over the winter. 
So while potentially such a dramatic step is unlikely, you're sort of seeing that kind of play out now. You're seeing a lot of in-season progress this year for McLaren, and then they'll aim to take another bigger step over the winter when they can address some more fundamental underlying things. There'll be some mechanical changes, I'm sure, over the winter that, are up, that aren't possible to do in-season for cost-cap reasons. So they'll have been prioritising as much as possible on the aerodynamic side. I'm pretty sure pr almost every upgrade has been aerodynamic um i think they made some there were some tweaks to the chassis i think to facilitate this latest upgrade but i don't know what those were but because that focus has been purely aerodynamic i suspect that's helped them you know mitigate the spending to as, as much as possible when you're introducing the packages that they have had in austria and uh, then again um last week in in singapore so i suspect they've managed it very well i don't think there's a risk of them going over the the budget cap, like I say, all feeds into twenty four, so they're, they're, they'll be they'll be staggering it like that. Yeah, it would be a failure of the management of the whole thing if they did bust the cost cap as a result. It's all very carefully tracked. Mark, a question from Juan Jose Aguirre, who says, "What does Oscar Piastri need to improve on to be on Norris's pace? Seventeen seconds gap at the end of the race seems like a significant one. Granted, it's his first year in F one, but it still seems quite a big gap after being ahead of Norris a couple of times in the race." Yeah, it's a tired deg race, and uh, the most difficult ones for rookies to get their heads around. How you know how much to take out of the tyres when, and, and and he was quite frank. And he, afterwards, he said oh, that wasn't one of my best races, and asked to explain why. He said, "Yeah, I've still got a lot to learn about how you how you treat the tyres in these high deg races." It's um, he said, "I feel I've I've made a big step up in my qualifying performances of late, but." When we get to these high deg tracks, that's where I'm struggling, and it's 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 just knowledge, it's just data put in the banks. It's it's not um, something he needs to worry about unduly. It's it's just inputting the data and uh, having it to work from. You know, when you're in the car, um, just getting a sense of how much to take from the, the tires, how much to how much entry speed to take in, how aggressive to be with the steering or not, um, how how to use the throttle pedal and the brakes it, and, and how that changes you know as the fuel load comes down and the track grip comes up and all those things you you, you can't really um put them in a computer program and and put them on a, a simulator and know know them you know they it's just stuff you've got to do um and it's you know he's, he's previous racing experience prior to this was in you know formula two so, um, yeah, he's still learning his craft. And if I can just add to that, I asked Andrea Stella about this after the race and he pointed out that, you know, race management, race management isn't a binary thing where, you know, once you've cracked it, that's it, it applies everywhere. The, the level of tyre management, the thermal management here was, was very different to what's been experienced before, especially on such a high-speed layout. So... It was, a, it was another part of the learning curve. If, if you compare it, for example, to the job Piastri did in the race at Silverstone, which was a fairly straightforward race in terms of management by, by comparison, Piastri missed a few seconds in race time over the course of the entire Grand Prix to Norris. It was much better there. He got a grip on it nice and early on, um, and he was able to manage it. Here, he was learning the whole way through. I'm sure it didn't help the fact that he was completely new to, to this circuit, and the, the unique challenges of it but McLaren felt that there were already signs in that final stint that Piastri had learned a little bit from the first couple and had started to apply it so they're, they're, they're obviously not worried about it they do just see it as part of the, the normal rookie learning curve.
Yeah, you can only learn by doing it. And the thing I really liked is he was very, very clear about the fact he wasn't that happy with his race. There's a lot of drivers, some of them on this grid, who would just look at the weekend and say, well, I outqualified my teammate. I got my first podium. I did a brilliant job. I need to learn nothing new. And there are drivers who would have that, but Piastri is absolutely the other way. And I think that's just proof that he's going to keep improving because he's always going to be interrogating the areas of his game that are weak that he needs to improve rather than just thinking he's cracked it, which is a hugely valuable thing, a really strong weekend for him, but with room for improvements. Scott, a question for you now from Thomas Knights, who says, with Norris now being level on points with George Russell, can he hold P6 or even target Leclerc in P5 in the standings? I think he can definitely target Leclerc, because for similar reasons to... um to McLaren targeting Aston Martin in the Constructors' Championship, you've got, a, you've got a situation there where I think over the balance of the final six races, the McLaren will be faster than, than the Ferrari. No, it won't be as dramatically faster as the McLaren is to the Aston Martin, and the point swing won't be as aggressive as a team, but there are going to be opportunities for Norris to chip away at it. It might be only four or six points at one race, but it might be 10 or 12 at another one. And there will be opportunities for Leclerc and Ferrari to have a stronger weekend than Norris and McLaren, I'm sure. So it's not going to be easy, but I think he should be he should definitely be on the offensive. Like I said, I think the McLaren's the second fastest car. With that in mind, he should be looking at trying to outscore everyone above him, except for Verstappen and maybe Perez over the final six races. Yeah, it's only 20 points to Leclerc, so perfectly doable. And science isn't that much further up the road, so who knows what's possible. Mark, a question for you from Stephen Taylor, which is kind of the other perspective on Piastri. He says, Oscar Piastri out-qualifying Lando Norris in his first time at Suzuka really impressed me, particularly at a track where rookies tend to struggle versus experienced teammates. Does Lando Norris risk becoming a David Coulthard-style number two, given Piastri is really pushing Norris in his rookie season and will likely make further gains next year? No, I don't think so. Piastri is not the 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 peak that you 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 see is is pretty much um, there throughout your career. You, you 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 know when you come in a, at a good level, you don't get faster. You just get more experience. Which is what we we're talking about earlier on, and there's there's nothing to suggest that Norris is a big chunk slower than peak Piastri. I think there are certain types of corner and certain situations where Piastri maybe has the edge in in terms of raw speed. Um, but there are others where not, they're just slightly different. Um, but they're not. There's not a in the way they go about it. There's not, there's not much difference in peak speed at all. So there's absolutely nothing to suggest that Norris is at a level where he would be uh, a number two. It's just he's not that level of driver. He's a higher level driver than that. Just such a great lineup for McLaren, isn't it? To have those two tied down for a few more years yet, because they've got complementary skills, they work well together, they're really doing the job. Very exciting for that team. Yeah, it's it's you know, it's a fantastic driver lineup, and it's 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 still maturing. And um, I think, as we talked about on the last podcast, it should be McLaren's absolute priority now that it's got extended Piastri's contract. To um to to extend Norris's too because it's just such a fantastic lineup. Yeah, and a good car next year. Not only let them get some big results, but should be a good step towards convincing Norris to stay even longer. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Let's move a little bit down the order now, Scott. What did you make of the way that Lewis Hamilton and George Russell did battle in general in this race? They had that little shoving match early on, not no contact, but forcing uh, forcing off track incident, and then that dispute about the DRS strategy. Does it underline the fact that for all the troubles Mercedes is having and battling through, there is actually a fascinating battle for supremacy playing out there under the surface? Yeah, absolutely. When um, when they signed Russell, and we knew that Hamilton and and him would be going up against one another in this team, we were. We were hoping that we'd see them come to blows over fifth or sixth in the Japanese Grand Prix, miles behind the race winner. It's obviously not the stakes that we expected them to be squabbling over, but I think this is the ferocity that we expected them to do battle with. What I liked about the way that they raced today is that while I found it ultimately futile, a bit a bit silly at, at, at its worst, they did by and large race fairly hard certainly but fairly I think that the one moment was when Lewis clearly took a bit too much speed into to spoon the front washed out and he just sort of ran George out of road but it was so it was such a such a clear-cut bit of running wide it, it, it didn't look intentional it just looked like too much speed being taken in but Russell's move into the chicane Lewis coming back at him down the start finish straight and sweeping round into turn one Lewis defending after his moment at uh, Degna two, um, and then you know the way that they went about that that final stretch. It was it was aggressive, but I think it was just about okay. I don't think there was any. Um, I don't I don't really think either of them crossed the line or or anything like that. Like I say, ultimately it was probably a bit needless. Um, but I don't really think either could complain. I, I didn't really like it when Russell came on the radio and said, "Are we racing each other or the others?" Because it's my view of that was like, well, if you're going to take that attitude, what are you doing? Forcing your teammate to defend into spoon in the first place. You know, just if, if it's either all or nothing, right? You either sit back and just let Hamilton regroup and get back at it, or you accept that if you attack, he can defend. You know, it's one, it's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. And I think as um, Hamilton kind of put it towards the end, it was just a lot of time lost for nothing towards the end of the Grand Prix. I think they did the right thing in letting Hamilton get past Russell. He was on fresher tyres and it kept meant it meant that at least one Mercedes beat the other Ferrari of Carlos Sainz. So in the end, I think it was just about the right outcome. It was just quite a tasty way of getting there. Yeah, there was maybe a higher upside by keeping them that way around and hoping that they could keep Hamilton ahead. But I think that was quite a high risk. So the pragmatic approach was to, uh, to let them swap round. And of course, Mark, this played out Within the wider framework of the race, there was a battle with Ferrari going on. Obviously, we ended up with Leclerc fourth, Hamilton fifth, Sainz sixth, and Russell seventh. Can you explain how that whole battle played out and therefore created that whole DRS strategy dispute in the Mercedes team? Yeah, I mean, the the Ferrari did have an edge on speed this weekend, which we quite often see um, in qualifying. But we usually expect to see the Mercedes claw that back with superior tyre deg in the in the race. We didn't see that this weekend. Um, there was very little difference on tyre deg. And so, yeah, you had a, so Leclerc um, was running ahead throughout. 
Uh, you had Lewis uh, th threatening to undercut, and so they had to pit Leclerc first to, uh, you know, because he, he, was, uh, he was a danger of being undercut by Lewis, um, which made Sainz the sacrificial um, undercut guy, so he then came out behind. Um, and so the way they played out, Mercedes decided to put Russell on a one-stop, um, which put him ahead on track position, but obviously much slower. And then, uh, you know, they, they, all, they all came past him, and there was then the question of what, what, what to do between the two, two Mercedes drivers. Um, and you had signs coming at them, um, you know, from being pushed behind by being the, the, the sacrificial guy to prevent Leclerc being undercut earlier on, but in the faster car. Um, and so Mercedes needed to play it quite tactically there to, to keep the faster car behind. And uh, yeah, it, it worked for them in the end. So you couldn't really call anybody's strategy in that wrong. It was just the way the, um, the, the cards played out for each player. Yeah, and I think given Mercedes are focused on the battle in the Constructors' Championship with Ferrari, only losing four points to them this weekend was a bit of a success, especially considering the Ferrari was a bit quicker. And they were, what, eighth and ninth on the first lap after that uh, incident on the run down to the first corner with Hamilton being uh, being hit. So, yeah, solid damage limitation there for Mercedes, but a little bit worrying for their overall uh, overall performance. But it was interesting, Scott, to see... Uh, the, the kind of script flipped with Sainz and Leclerc, wasn't it? Leclerc seemed to be a lot happier. Sainz had a weekend where he, contrary to having hit the ground running the previous few weekends, he sort of struggled through with setup experiments and was, was playing catch-up. So it just uh, just shows how quickly that sort of thing can turn around. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because that car's all about confidence, right? Like if, if Leclerc can lean on it and he can live with any of the rear instability, we know what he's capable of. He's a special driver and... He was in a place with the car where he was more comfortable. Signs did put himself on, on the back foot. He feels in hindsight still that it was the right thing to do because when you have the car in a in in a window where it's not working very well, which this is the kind of track where it does work less well than, say, a Singapore or a Monza, then he feels that you do need to experiment just to see if you can fix some of the underlying limitations. Now, it turns out he couldn't do that with the setup, but maybe it's given them some ideas for the future. So Signs doesn't necessarily regret it. But I think it just put Leclerc on a trajectory to to beat him fair, not, fairly comfortably in the end. Sainz also accepted that Leclerc was just, you know, probably had a tenth on him this weekend. Leclerc was just in very good form, just seemed a lot happier with the car. Um, whether that's a direct result of the way he's tried to, you know, adjust his technique and style to suit this car a little bit better, maybe it's a bit too soon to to make such a judgment. But he just seemed happier with it that, that 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 is the way that this car goes it's kind of similar to the mercedes in a way we see the swings between the drivers there hamilton talked about that really well this weekend i loved his description of the car rather than say it's about rather than talking about the knife edge he talked about the, the almost the knife point he said if you if you try to balance a knife on the tip that's what this mercedes is like it can go too far one way too far the other and trying to get its balance in the middle is just really really difficult if not impossible to do, I kind of feel like the Mercedes and the Ferrari are almost two sides of the same coin. So you see, one weekend one driver's in the sweet spot and nails it; the other week, and then one weekend it's the other driver who's got a little bit of an edge. 
Yeah, and I think uh, a little bit concerning for Mercedes for next year, the, the high-speed corner. I think it's nothing new, but you can see they don't have the, the rear grip. The driver's having to work quite hard in some of the corners to make it work, so it shows how far they've still got to go. Let's move on to Aston Martin now, Mark. Fernando Alonso managed eighth place. A pretty good day by Aston Martin's recent standards. Was it still a case of Alonso overachieving, and are you seeing any signs of him getting a bit frustrated? Yeah, I mean, he was frustrated with the tyre strategy at one point, and... Um the fact that he was, um, he, he felt he'd been pitted too early, and you know, fell, fell among a, a load of faster cars on on tyres, not really that he was able to fight with. Um, just a general competitive frustration, and you know, in 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 the way that the um, the performance of the car has fallen off, and then you, know, you get the sense that he's it's not so much just that fact; it's a. It, it, you wonder what is going on within the team to address it and 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 to respond to it, and I think that's he seems to be questioning that. Um, you know, it's it, it's one thing for the performance to not be where you want it to be, but it's another if you don't think it's being uh, treated seriously enough. And I, I do wonder with a competitive intensity of. Alonso, whether that might lead to um, a few further uh, cracks um, in in the uh, in what's left of the season. Yeah, it's interesting looking at the performance because very much in the race, based on pace, it was Aston Martin versus Alpine. It's almost like Aston Martin has slid back into that that battle in no man's land where Alpine was on its own for a while. So that that's the thing that would be slightly worrying that they are now out of that lead group on a lot of occasions and now in that scrap. And Alonso, I think. Scott, you put to Alonso that they had maybe the fifth fastest car and he sort of scoffed at that on Saturday. So he clearly thinks it's it's even slower than that. Well, I, I honestly wasn't sure how to interpret it. I kind of thought that's the only way he could have meant it. But I did wonder if he was sort of pointing to maybe Zandvoort where obviously he was on the the podium or maybe he just, um, maybe he just wanted to genuinely question what my metric was for, for judging it. Uh, if anyone cares, it's really Gary Anderson's favoured super time method and just looking at it on, on balance really, even if you take into account Zandvoort, if you go back three or four races before the summer break, they're more often than not, they're, they're the fifth, they're the, they're either fourth or fifth fastest. And I think since Zandvoort, it's quite clear that they're at the back of that lead group or as you said, Ed, may, maybe even slightly detached from it now they don't really seem to have an answer they they're, they're saying emphatically now that te- the current technical directives haven't haven't impacted their form in in any way um seem to think that they've just missed a trick on development and been outgunned by by their rivals and that's just meant that they haven't necessarily slipped too far back from red bull but others have piled into that gap and that maybe that gap has got a little bit bigger so it is concerning. I think they know they, they know there is a, a real need to turn it around because what you don't want to do on a in a season like this where you have scored quite a few podiums and started so strongly is no one's going to remember that if it if it ends on such a low ebb. And you know, Crack agreed with that. Team principal Mike Crack, when I spoke to him, he he said that they really need to avoid it fading away at the end of the season and have some momentum rather than disappointment. Unfortunately, that does. That does look unlikely. They have some upgrades coming, so all hope isn't lost. But it's a long shot. And to to keep McLaren at bay, they really need Lance Stroll to start scoring points. He was unlucky today. Uh, they had a issue with the rear wing and they decided that the best thing to do was to park the car and assess it. There, there's no more information than that uh, that I've got 
at this stage, Crack didn't have a conclusive answer afterwards. They were obviously a little bit worried as well that maybe it could strike Alonso's car, but there was no sign of that happening. So it seems to be a bit of a freak occurrence that made made that meant Stroll's just it's another weekend in which he's not scored points. I think it's actually a reasonable weekend for Stroll because he came very, very close actually to being the Aston Martin that went through to Q2, which would have knocked out Alonso. He was certainly ahead going into the chicane, but then just had a poor exit and he ended up two tenths behind. But yeah, actually, this was probably a little bit of an uptick in form for Stroll compared to recent form. Let's talk about Alpine now, Scott. They finished about where they should do, ninth and tenth for Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly. But can you explain the place swapping shenanigans and why Gasly in particular was so unhappy? Yeah, I can try to. Um, Gasly seems to be unhappy because I think he slightly misread what happened in Ocon's race. So basically, they put Ocon onto um, onto the hard tyres on, on the first lap. Basically, after he pit because he picked up a puncture on the in that first lap shenanigans on the run down to turn one, and that, to all intents and purposes, put uh, Ocon onto a one stop because he then just did a long, really long stint on hards and then another really long, long stint. On hards, whereas Gasly was on the conventional two-stopper. Um, and basically what happened thereafter was it meant that their offset strategies meant they converged in the final stint with Gasly catching Ocon. And at a rate that meant catching at, uh, the the Aston of Alonso in front, was, was it was possible. So as Gasly got close to Ocon, he was about two seconds behind, Alpine intervened and ordered Ocon to let Gasly by so he could go after Alonso. Ocon asked if he would be let back past if Gasly failed, and he did not get, in that moment, an affirmative answer. He, they just said, we'll see what we can do. Gasly cracked on, thinking he was just being let by because he, by rights, should have been in front because it was only strategy that meant Ocon was in front of him. Gasly had out-qualified Ocon and run ahead of him in the start, start in the first stint. So that's why we then got to this situation in the final lap, where Gasly was being told to move aside um, and let Ocon back through. He was furious with it, but eventually did it, and he did it in the most grumpy Pierre Gasly way possible, by basically pulling to the left and grind, almost coming to a stop on the exit of the final corner. His engineer actually came over the radio and sort of said, "I need you, basically, I need you to do this. He didn't he briefly thought that Gasly might not. And Gasly afterwards, the way he spoke, it, it, I, think, I think he thought that Ocon was there from a, through a conventional race, not because of what actually happened. And I think what had been discussed in the race was that if their strategies as planned played out with Ocon undercutting Gasly, then Alpine would let uh, Gasly back through because he, he would deserve to be there. So I think there was a bit of a miscommunication on that side, and then just a total lack of communication to actually explain this as the race was going on. So the first Gasly heard of the place swapping back was, was when he got that order on the penultimate lap. So you can see why he'd be furious, because he thought he was having a place completely wrongly taken away from him. He just thought it was badly handled by Alpine. Yeah, well, that's not the first thing we'd say uh, that about. But yeah, certainly create a reaction. Often team orders do. But yeah, you can see why that all played out that way. Mark, should we briefly talk about Alfa Romeo? Because they had very high hopes for this weekend. The Singapore update was expected to improve things at a track like Suzuka. But neither driver made it out of Q1. Then the races were effectively ruined at the start. Mm. Given this is supposed to be a team that's upping its game with Audi's growing involvement, how concerned should be there? Or do you think it was a little bit unlucky for them this weekend? I think there's an underlying sense that this doesn't seem to be a team that's visibly gearing up to be this big new works Audi team. And I think until the ownership uh, change is completed, 
Um, I think you are going to see it in this sort of no man's land, really. Of it's still it's still operating as the little Sabre team. Um, it did bring a good up, upgrade uh, to Singapore, and they were quite happy here that it was through the practices that it was doing what they thought it would do. Uh, Bottas did a hard tired long run on Friday, which was very good. It was very promising. Um, the FP3 form of the car, it looked as though it was clearly Q2 material, maybe maybe even nipping at the hems of Q3. Um, but neither driver put the lap together when it counted in Q1. And it was, you know, talking to the team, they were saying, well, it, there was nothing unusual about the car. The, the, the tire temperatures were, were correct. The balance was the same as it had been in FP3. It's just... Joe had a big moment at turn nine, as you probably saw, and the uh, Valtteri just didn't get the, uh, the the S's nailed in the way he had in, in in that morning's practice, and that that was enough. And then that put them in that position where they you know, that was involved in all the carnage down at the back of the grid. Yeah, that certainly uh, ruined the race for Alfa Romeo. Joe's pace wasn't too bad, actually, once he rejoined. He didn't have any damage, but obviously Bottas's uh, race was ruined when he. Well, ruined completely when he had that contact with uh, with Sergeant when uh, Sergeant locked up, which of course and him a penalty, and of course that incident with Bottas being squeezed between Ocon and Albon also ruined pretty much Williams's race with Albon picking up a load of floor damage and sort of plodding on, but having no chance in what he called an undrivable car. So yeah, no movement in that congested battle for seventh place in the constructors' championship this weekend. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, it's now time for our usual section dedicated to questions from the Race Members Club. For more information on the benefits, head to the Race website and click on Join the Race. Asking questions in our Race Review podcast is one benefit, as is being able to join the discussion in our comments section on articles written by all of us. So let's go to you first, Mark, with a question from Daniel Kay, who says, I know the recent fluctuations in performance throughout the grid can be attributed to developments and track-specific strengths, but I'm curious. It seems the setup window is quite narrow, much more than previous generations of cars. Is this the case and if so why it is the case yeah it's a very good observation daniel um and it's it's to do with the, the, the this um set of regulations with the you know the ground effect underbodies and basically they're intrinsically fantastic through fast corners and really awkward and clunky through slow corners and they're very very sensitive to ride height and the ride height that you can run varies enormously according to the track going to 
track characteristics um, according to whether the, the car's got a porpoising you know, tendency. Um, all, there are a whole load more variables than there used to be with the flat bottom cars. And that's why you're seeing such a, you know, behind Red Bull, you're seeing such a quite a fluctuation in form from one track to the next, from one track surface type to the next, from one track temperature to the next. And also whether you just, um, you know, you've, you've hit the sweet spot when you turn up on Friday or you haven't. And then that, that can just be, you know, that can have a, have a certain random effect as well. Next question for you, Scott, from Mark Riley, who says, after that performance today, how certain can we be that Perez will be retained for 2024? I have to be brutally honest. For me, it seems like a waste of a seat in the quickest car of 2023. A title fight could prove Checo to be a liability and cost them a Constructors' Championship in 2024. Yeah, well, that final point from Mark is absolutely spot on. It's the risk that Perez could cost them in a title championship battle that is so so concerning or would be so concerning for Red Bull as it is I think for 2024 he's set he's locked in Um, we know that it was announced this weekend AlphaTauri will have Daniel Ricciardo and Yuki Tsunoda driving for them next season they've initially named Liam Lawson as their reserve driver Um, it would be extremely surprising if something happens in the final six races for Red Bull to bin off Perez and name Lawson or anyone else alongside Verstappen for 2024 so I think um I think there's I think there's no reason to believe that Perez won't be alongside Verstappen at the start of next year. The one scenario I guess that could arise would be if Perez performs more like this than he has in his podium finishing or even race winning pomp at Red Bull this season, then there's a chance that Red Bull could suffer from that next year if the fight is closer whether it's from McLaren or Ferrari or Mercedes, then they won't be able to have one driver who's winning the Constructors' Championship single-handedly, which is what Verstappen's doing at the moment. In that scenario, if you've got Ricardo excelling at AlphaTauri, then maybe Red Bull would be inclined to dump Perez, put Ricardo in the Red Bull, and then because Lawson's hanging around, if he doesn't get the Williams drive, for example, in 2024, um, you you could plonk him in the AlphaTauri alongside Sonoda and just say goodbye to Perez. Like that, That's a scenario that... I think given Red Bull's tendency to make in-season driver changes if they feel they really need to, I don't think would I don't think I think there's a non-zero chance of, of of that happening, but I don't see any reason why Perez won't be starting 2024 alongside Verstappen. That that seat is his. Next question from Alex Lacey, which I'll take, asks, should it be a hard rule that you shouldn't be able to send a car back out after it's been retired from the race? To find a loophole to avoid a potential grid penalty at the next race is just a little embarrassing for the sport. This loophole could also be exploited to send out retired cars to test new components on a live racetrack, which could be dangerous too. Well, in answer to that, there's actually no formal status of being retired. You have to complete 90% of the winner's distance to be a classified finisher, but you do occasionally get drivers who are still running at the finish not being awarded a position. So they're not, say, 13th, they'll be unclassified because they're too many laps down. So there's not actually a mechanism for being formally declared retired like you might have, for example, at Le Mans. So you can theoretically use a race as a test session if you want to. You'd have to abide by all the rules not get in the way etc but there have been occasions where people have done this sort of thing not kind of going in and out constantly but trying things out etc giving some mileage to drivers so this does happen i get why it's regarded as a loophole it isn't entirely because 
It's worth noting, as you said, it was a potential grid penalty because the regulations state that stewards may turn an unserved penalty into one at the next race, but it's not actually an obligation. I don't think it should be an obligation either. Red Bull were covering all the bases by ensuring it couldn't happen, although I doubt it would have been done. Anyway, so it's it's a rule that exists to avoid penalty avoiding shenanigans, and it's there for a reason to give the stewards the option if they feel something hasn't been justly punished if you see what I mean you could easily avoid it by stipulating you aren't considered to have served in race penalty in certain conditions say if you're an x number of laps down or you're at that point in the race you're live you're below 90% of the leader's race distance something like that so there's plenty of ways you can do it I'd be a little bit wary about having a hard and fast rule that says that a time penalty that's unserved has to become a grid penalty at the next race because then you'll actually have the same risk you'll have people putting potentially hobbled cars out on track just to serve a penalty to avoid it carrying over so I like the fact there's a bit of discretion it could be tightened up but I wasn't quite as outraged as as some were I just thought it was Red Bull being very thorough as they are as a team and uh, just absolutely making sure there was no chance of it Mark a question for you now from Danny Danielski says should Pirelli tweak the tyres so the drivers don't have to manage through a certain sector in qualifying uh, it would be good, but um, it, it, it's verging on physically impossible when you've got cars this heavy with this much torque and this much downforce. Um, you are really um, pushing at the envelope of um, tyre technology. Uh, ideally, yes, um, but probably the easiest way to do it, rather than expand uh, the the boundaries of knowledge in tyre technology would be to come up with cars that um, are a whole chunk lighter. Next question for you, Scott, comes from Michael Amadi, who says, for all his charm, flashes of speed and commercial appeal, are Logan Sargent's days numbered, especially with Liam Lawson stand-in appearances gaining momentum and both seats at AlphaTauri already filled for 2024? Despite two US races ahead, could a change happen before the season ends? And what are Mick Schumacher's chances to grab that seat? Uh, I don't think Mick has any chance of of getting that seat in terms of could a change happen before the end of the season. I don't think that happens either. In fact, I think Williams is probably going to give Sargent until the very last race to prove himself. And that gives him... So he's got six Grand Prix now to... uh, The best case scenario is build some momentum, maybe even score a point or two um, and just show that he can finally piece together, as, um, as Michael points out, what are genuine flashes of speed and this weekend was almost the ultimate example of it he was he was on a really good lap in in qualifying obviously it was only the first run but he was about he was going to match Albon but then he failed to piece it together in the most dramatic way possible by having a heavy heavy crash uh, that caused all sorts of uh, problems and a big rebuild job for for Williams um so he's got six races to kind of put that right i think he i get the impression that Williams want Sargent to give them a reason to keep him. I I don't think it's a Schumacher-Hass situation from last year, for example, where he's the incumbent driver but desperately unlikely to keep the seat. I think he's got a good chance, but it's been in his control for a while and he hasn't pieced it together. He's on a partly self-inflicted spec discrepancy to Albon in the form of a missing front wing. There are some suggestions that maybe it's a bit more than that, but that's not what Williams says. So there are no real excuses because it's not the gap to Albon that's really been the problem. Yes, he does need to piece it together and qualify better and get closer to Albon over one lap by piecing it together, but we can see the speed is there. It's just the qualifying results are often missing, but then the race results are missing more. And he's also started to add a couple of really costly crashes into the mix as well. So I wouldn't... I think it would be borderline negligent now for Red Bull and Williams not to at least have a conversation 
about Lawson for 2024, but I still think Sargent's the favourite. Next up, a question I'll take from JK, who says, does the lack of penalty for Hamilton forcing Russell off the track cement the notion that stewards will never dish out punishments for incidents between teammates? Uh, well, I don't know whether it cements it as such, but it's definitely an unwritten rule. It can't be formal, obviously, because the stewards must have the power to punish a driver who's being massively problematic, even if they are teammates. But it's a sensible way to approach it, really, provided people don't take uh, liberties. I'm aware of cases where stewards would definitely have given a penalty for an incident had it not been between teammates. And there's plenty of others that certainly look that way from the outside so yeah it's just one of those things that they will let slide obviously the competitor is the driver plus team and yeah if teammates want to drive into each other as long as it's not getting in the way of other people then uh, so be it it's only if you get drivers being dangerous or regularly doing it that you need to do something mark a question now for you from nevin knowles who says in gary anderson's article about the new ferrari updates he mentioned the possibility of them switching to a pull rod front suspension like red bull and mclaren in 2024 how would the knowledge they gained over the season be transferred to a completely new concept and what benefits would they gain from the switch well they're talking about a completely different aerodynamic concept um for for the for next year's ferrari um there's almost a tacit admission that they've reached the ceiling of this concept that they're sort of outwashing the big outwashing side pods rather than the, the big undercut side pods. And if you're going to do that geometry and then the associated floor geometry, um, it looks as though the, um, the, the type of suspension that Red Bull have, uh, have, have gone is, is an easier way of doing, getting a, an airflow appropriate to that concept of underbody and, and, and side pod. Um, I don't think it presents a problem um, mechanically. You don't have, there's no particular tricks in, in running one type rather than another type that, that do the same thing. They're just built differently. Um, so I, I, no, I don't think it would be a problem. It would be, it, it, it's all centered around the aerodynamic and it just facilitates what they want to do aerodynamically. Next question for you, Scott, from Andrew Wilson, who says, Hello from Japan, here for the race. What an amazing country and what a circuit to be at. Not so much a weekend question, but what are your personal thoughts on Suzuka being moved from its late season spot in the calendar to being early on next year? Being at the start of the calendar just doesn't feel right. Uh, well, first of all, I'm object- I, I object to it on the grounds that I think it coincides with the blossom season and the flights for next year look really expensive. So just purely from a cost management point of view, I, 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 I dislike it. I am interested to see what it will be like. I spoke to someone who's from Japan uh, the other day who um, said that no, no guarantees on what the weather will be like. But if I think of every time I've been to Japan when it's been in its late season slot, we feel like we've always been at risk of some kind of storm hitting this weekend was completely the opposite. It was so hot and so humid for most of the weekend. So actually, if we're just going to go to a dry, slightly cooler time of year, I, don't, I genuinely don't know what to expect. I, I confess to being completely ignorant to the um, uh, meteorological and um, seasonal elements of, of, of Japan, what it's like at different points of the year. I think it's quite interesting to have it at the start of the season from a narrative point of view because always used to like this kind of feels like the place where a title gets wrapped up or one of the titles gets wrapped up in a really dominant season and you can kind of lose a little bit of that kind of interest in the season as a whole by the time you get here having it early in the year I'm actually quite interested to see what that's like because this feels like a quite a fun track to host the season when it's still you know nice and high stakes and we're still trying to fill stuff out. Imagine coming here for example at the start of the year when nobody's really got their cars properly figured out. 
I also think there's never a bad time to go to Suzuka, is there? It's a great place to go. Next question I'll take from David Teague, who says, with all the talk about the latest TD affecting performance of the cars and the speculation that it might have hurt Red Bull, but it didn't, why is there not talk about how the TD about movable planks affected Ferrari? Their performance from Spa up until recently was pretty off after that TD was issued. Uh, Well, there was some talk of that at the time, but it was well over a year ago. Now, I mean, the TD at Spa last year had an effect on Ferrari, and it was talked about at the time, but it was only part of the wider story of it slipped backwards in competitiveness. And it's also worth remembering, I think Ferrari took pole position at Spa Monza around Singapore, so three of the four races after. So it's not like they were falling out in Q2, uh, Red Bull. Uh, why? So it's part of the story, but not not all of it. And obviously there were some tweaks on the, on the floor, but I don't think it transformed it. Red Bull Singapore performances, if they'd been a direct consequence of the TD, and the other clarifications that were issued, that would be a dramatically bigger story than any impact anything had on Ferrari last year. But of course, as Azuka proved, and the facts of Singapore suggested, as we talked about, it ultimately was a non-story. So yeah, it's just, it's been part of the narrative, but it's it's certainly not really something that's especially uh, relevant now. Mark, a question from Joe Graham, who says, Today we saw Liam Lawson beat his teammate in his fourth Grand Prix and third proper weekend. What is to lose for Williams in giving him a seat, even if it only means they have him for 2024? Yeah, I quite agree. Um... They obviously want, as Scott was talking about before, they want to give Logan a, um, a fair crack of the whip. But, um, yeah, if you were being ruthless and you're looking at Sergeant having put his car on the wall and just as um, Lawson's put his Alpha Tauri in P4, you, you, yeah, you, you would be bound to be considering that. And uh, he's been highly impressive. Um Probably the most favourable set of circumstances he's going to get with this weekend because he's um, so familiar with this track. Um, but yeah, he, he certainly grabbed that opportunity and um, has, has maximised it. He's been hugely impressive. Next question for you, Scott, comes from Andy, who says, I'm a long-time listener and the first time I've sent a question. I was surprised to see that the grandstands at Suzuka don't really seem to be full. I'm writing this after quality, not the race. Based on the marketing that I see from both F1 and the TV broadcasters, would it be fair to say that this race is not getting the same push as some of the newer ones on the calendar? It seems like a real shame because more than any other track that is on the calendar, Suzuka always seems to get drivers, teams and pundits buzzing the most. Um, well, I think it's obviously a, it's a different one because it's not uh, it's not a race where that's easily accessible to to uh, a large chunk of um, you know the global the global fan base. It's not like a European race, for example, that has lots and lots of visitors from different countries. It's not a it's not a conventional sort of destination race that people will fly to um, for obvious reasons. It's just it's just it's a race that is take tailored to local fans mainly in the same way that when you go to Australia I love that that's a race that just has obviously I mean that's more of a destination race but it has it is a race that has a lot of Australian fans descend on mass which is an amazing thing to see because we're in a part of the world where because it's a you know it's a eurocentric timetable and schedule and, and and all of that it's often these races happen at times that are almost impossible to watch or really inconvenient to watch uh, in, in other parts of the world so i like that it's a it's a race for the for the locals there's more than just japanese fans here obviously there there are international members of of the audience but i think the numbers were fairly healthy i think it was I think there were over 100,000 people in the crowd today alone and the confirmed weekend attendance was 222,000, which was up from 200,000 last year. So I think the race race is healthy and the number of fans here was amazing. They were just the usual, 
incredibly enthusiastic, super sweet bunch. We were getting waved at on the on the media shuttle on the way into the circuit and out of the circuit every single day. So I think there was lots of people here having a, an amazing time. It's just, uh, yeah, it's one of those races with a more local audience. And the final question we'll aim at you, Mark, from Jordan Stover, who says, During qualifying, David Croft mentioned Mark Hughes is up in the commentary box and helps them during qualifying in the race. Is it the same Mark Hughes from the race? If so, what is it that Mark does to help out with the broadcast on Sky? I remember over 20 years ago, Mark Hughes would mention things to look out for on the Fox Sports Net broadcast here in America when I was a kid, and it's always been cool to hear Mark on the podcast so many years later. I'd certainly agree it's always cool to hear you on the podcast, Mark, but is that you in the Sky box? Yeah, it is. Um, uh, it 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 started with um, um, m- my association with Martin Brundle helping Martin in the uh, commentary box back in the BBC days and the ITV days, and I've just stayed with him as he's he's gone to Sky. And I think Fox News took one of one of the feeds from there. Um, so yeah, that's where you'll have heard me there. And uh, yeah, I, I got mentioned this particular time because I'd said something to Crofty. Just because I can talk to him um, through the headphones without, you know, I'm not um, there to broadcast. I'm there to uh, monitor what's going on in the race and um, monitor gaps and uh, strategies and, and, and things like that because it's an impossible thing to be talking at the same time as, as staying fully on top of that. You do need somebody there to, to be doing just that that doesn't have to worry about um, communicating and talking. So that that's what I do. But I said something just to Crofty that was nothing to do with that. It was it, it was during qualifying, and it was when um, I think it was Gasly said there was something rolling about on the footwell, something really big rolling about in the footwell, and this had happened just a few seconds after Anthony Davidson had noticed a huge spider on on my neck, and had very sort of gingerly forgive the pun. On, and, and the, um, gingerly sort of swatted it off my neck and it landed on the floor and I looked at it it was enormous and I said to Crofty when, when I heard Gasly say that that there was something enormous floating about in the cockpit well I suggested it was maybe an enormous spider he wasn't then supposed to broadcast that I wasn't supposed to be information that was going to be useful to the viewer. <laughs> all your all your years spent as the voice and reason in the ear of the commentators across the BBC, Sky, and who knows where else has been picked up, and the time that you make it onto the air with a reference is because of a silly comment you've made about a spider. Yeah, that'll teach me, won't it? It turns out you're just there to do some little comedy stylings uh, uh, to, to keep them going during the uh, during the, the sessions so uh, and the races. So you've uh, that's that's discredited you now. <laughs> oh well. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is uh, it is an important task and it certainly adds to the quality of the broadcast. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there from the Japanese Grand Prix and about wider goings on in the motorsport world. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, the Race F1 Tech Show with the legend that is Gary Anderson. We've also got an IndyCar podcast, Formula E, MotoGP so plenty to listen to and also have a look at our YouTube channel. Lots to watch there. We've now got a brief gap before the Qatar Grand Prix, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.